I preached a sermon this summer on six ways to meditate. This morning, I want us to take a deep dive into heartfulness, which is one of the six ways, but it may help first to give just the briefest of overviews of the six ways, because sometimes the best way to understand a meditation technique is to compare it and contrast it with other practices. Indeed, I sometimes talk to people that have been meditating a really long time, but I'm going to be a little brutally honest right now. It's not clear to me what they're doing on their cushion. Like, it's like, are you are you actually making progress? Because what you're doing really does matter, and then there's a lot of different things one one might be doing that... Well, I'll say more about that in a second. The, the six I'm going to name are uh, merely broad umbrella categories for the meditation practices I'm most familiar with, have spent the most time doing. This graphic was designed by Vincent Horn, one of my primary meditation teachers. So let's start in the upper, light, uh, upper left-hand corner with that single dot. So one of the things you might be doing on your meditation cushion is this whole diff- there's a whole sorts, all, all sorts of different types of practices for each of these, but it's concentration. And another word for concentration is indistractability. And if you've been doing a lot of concentration practice, that's the thing that lets you know if you're making progress. Are you becoming more indistractable? So are you staying on that single point or not? So things may be coming up in the periphery of your, of your mind, but are you staying on your concentration object, whatever that is? So that's concentration meditation. A lot more to say about all of these. Let's move then over to the top right. Now, do you notice that one has lots of dots? That's mindfulness. Mindfulness is about becoming more aware of all the things that are going on with you at any given moment. And the way you notice you're becoming more, uh, noticing progress in mindfulness is sensory clarity, that you're becoming really, really clear on sort of a base sensate level of what is actually happening with you. Feeling, breathing, warmth, coolness, pressure. Uh, Continuing to move around is heartfulness, and the way you notice more progress there is sort of both what's happening on the cushion, but also what's happening off the cushion. Are you becoming friendlier? (laughs) Are you becoming more loving, more compassionate, more, uh, more equanimity in your life, uh, more joyful? Uh, continuing to move around, uh, the next one is that cloud, which is awareness practices. So this is like Dzogchen or Mahamudra, for those who are kind of familiar, uh, or awareness is a, a little bit of a friendlier term for it. And this is about noticing that your mind is actually always already vast, and spacious in awareness, even when we're really contracted. So this, today's weather is a really good example. The sun is actually out on the other side of those clouds, right? And that's what awareness is like, that even when you're feeling cloudy, your mind, you can actually open into that vast, spacious, open awareness. And that, that's what awareness practice. And if I had to give you one example, close your fist right now really, really tight, and then just let it go. That's, how, that's the basic move awareness practice. It, it, it's, it's kind of a not doing, it's just a letting go. Whatever your mind is clenching around, stop doing that. <laughs> just, just let go. Uh, Uh, The next one around is the tree. That's embodiment. A lot of people meditate for a long time, and and what they eventually come to realize is a very neck-up way. And uh, embodiment's about bringing our our body into that embodiment. And finally, the question mark is inquiry. It's about learning these skillful questions that you can just kind of drop into your consciousness and ask them with real curiosity, really not knowing the answer. You know, like like you've lost your keys. Like, Like, 
where are my keys? Like really asking the question, like you really sort of don't know mind. And the reason they're all connected, and, we, is, and I talked about this a lot this summer, uh, it, it's sort of contemplative cross-training. Because if you're feeling really agitated and trying to do concentration, doing a little bit of the heartfulness that we're talking about this morning, even just a few minutes, that can help you actually enter into concentration more fully. And concentration is the typical platform that, that you would enter into mindfulness with. So all of these are actually really connected and mutually strengthen one another. Uh, if you want more detail, look in our online service archive in August, if you, if you may or may not want to do this, but you can hear me talk about all this for an hour. Uh, so it's, it's there if you want it. But this morning, I really want to focus on heartfulness. This is, by the way, an AI-generated uh, image that I created in about 10 seconds. So um, that's another sermon I preached about. For now, I'd like to go uh, again much more deeper than we had time for this summer into heartfulness. For those of you who have spent a fair amount of time exploring Buddhism, you may have discovered that those ancient Buddhists really loved lists. They were just list-making fiends. Uh, there are the two truths. There's the three characteristics of reality. There's the four foundations of mindfulness, the five hindrances, the six sense gates, the seven factors of awakening, the eightfold path, the ten fetters, the twelve links of dependent origination. And each of those numbers has many, many more lists. There's lots and lots of, of lists to help you remember sort of all the things. Uh, but for practicing heartfulness, the more, most famous list is the four Brahma-viharas. Uh, and today, the, the Brahma-viharas are most closely associated with Buddhism. But long before the life of the historical Buddhas, the four Brahma-viharas were being taught by Indian sages. So some of you remember that, um, that Buddha was a, a Hindu prince before he became a, uh, a Buddhist in the same way that Christianity was kind of born out of uh, a Jewish context. Uh, and you can see the Hindu origins in the etymology of this word. I just want to kind of break it into two parts. So we're going to start with Brahma. That's the front half of Brahma-vihara. It's often translated as sublime or divine. And that word Brahma has deep roots in the Hindu tradition. Uh, so if we look at the Hindu scriptures known as the Vedas, some of you may remember hearing about uh, the triple deity of Brahma, the creator, and Shiva, the, des um, the destroyer, and Vishnu, the preserver. So right there, you can even see, you know, Brahma, the creator. This is a big deal. This is like one of the, the big, you know, gods in Hinduism. It's, it's named after that. Or some of you may have heard about um, Brahman is actually ultimate reality, Brahman, with an A-N. Or Brahmana means priest. Or Brahman with an I-N is the highest caste. Some of you may know that as well. The, or like Boston Brahmins, you hear about those too, so the, uh, in the Indian caste system. Uh, have any of you read Isabella Wilkerson's powerful book, Caste? I know some of you have. I see a few hands out there. That last association of Brahma with the caste system is a good reminder, or really a haunting one, that even the highest and most sublime aspects of reality can actually be co-opted for systems of oppression. So we can take Brahma, this kind of highest thing, and it can be turned into a supremacy culture where some rule over others. But the ultimate truth of the Brahma-viharas is that they're not reserved. These practices are not reserved for an elite few they're, they're freely open for all to practice them. Uh, 
So let's shift our attention to viharas, the second, the back half of that word. This term often refers to a monastery where monks live. Uh, another typical English translation is the word abode, so where, where you live, where you find a home. So this is about, you know, home is ideally, it's where the heart is, right? It's, it's where safety is, and that, that's what we're trying to, to cultivate. But we want to actually feel safe and heartful everywhere, which is ultimately what this is about. Putting these two words together, Brahma, uh, sublime or divine, and Vihara, abode or dwelling, my favorite translation of the Brahma Viharas into English is the sublime abodes. So that's going to be inviting us to, like, what might it be to dwell somewhere that's a sublime abode? That's what we're going to talk about. More literally, it can be translated as sublime states or divine dwellings. More loosely, it's been translated as the immeasurables, the infinite minds, the highest emotions. So what are these four Brahma-viharas? This is your list of four. Uh, Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And we're going to explore each of these in turn. So the first of the four Brahma-viharas, remember these come out of an ancient uh, Indian Hindu context. So in Maitri, it's Maitri in Sanskrit, Metta in Pali. Some of you have heard this like Metta meditation, not Metta, M-E-T-A, like in Greek, M-E-T-T-A. Uh, Pali was the ancient language that the historical Buddha would have spoken. So you sometimes see this word translated as loving friendliness, loving kindness, goodwill, taking this active interest in others. And Buddhist psychology has two really, really helpful categories, and that's the far enemy and the near enemy. And so this, again, kind of the way I showed you these six ways to meditate, that it can be easier to understand some things by comparing them with others. So the far enemy helps us understand what something is because it's the opposite of that. And then the near enemy shows us the thing it can most easily be confused with. So think about in your heart right now, who's someone you really feel a lot of friendliness towards, a lot of love towards? So kind of pull that up in your heart, in your emotions. The far enemy of that is hate or ill will. And so just kind of feeling the difference there. The near enemy, though, is attachment or greed. You know, there's a thin line between giving someone a, a hug and holding them down so they can't get away, right? <laughs> so that's the near enemy, right? I'm going to love you and squeeze you and keep you as my very own, right? Like that's the, uh, so that kind of clinging and grasping and need to control, that is toxic to authentic loving kindness, but it can, it's the near enemy. It can easily get confused with that. Uh, loving kindness that's offered freely as a gift, as Ursa spoke some about during the meditation. To say more about the practical effects of practicing loving kindness, why might one want to spend a bunch of time on a meditation cushion doing this? Let me tell you a story. A few years ago, I was practicing a lot. Of, I tend to go kind of through seasons. I'm going to do a lot of med- you know, concentration practice. Or I'm going to do a lot of heartfulness for a while. or I'm going to do a lot of awareness for a while. So I was doing a lot of loving kindness, spending a lot of time on my meditation cushion, just kind of dropping these statements into my conscious, you know, slowly, contemplatively. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I live with an open heart. There's lots of variations. And then you typically, and we're going to experiment with this in the, the hymn following the sermon, you change that first person I to you. And, you know, it's like, who do you need that you to be, right? You, you know who you need to work on loving, right? Uh, so, you know, uh, may you be filled with loving kindness. May you be peaceful and at ease. And then you change it to we or various pronouns. Uh, so the uh, one day after been, I'd been in this practice regularly for many, many weeks, I was taking my dog on a walk, minding my own business. I was just about uh, two blocks away. I uh, was returning home after a few miles. And my dog uh, chose to use the bathroom on the grass of someone's lawn. And as soon as she finished, a person walking towards us on the sidewalk said, 
Is that your yard? And there was something just kind of off about the question. It felt just kind of odd. And I, I just found myself kind of unexpectedly responding, is it your yard? <laughs> and sort of continuing this pattern of sidestepping answering the question, the person responded by saying, it's rude to let your dogs pee in other people's yards. And to which I said, is it? <laughs> the, this back and forth kind of escalated a bit from there until I unexpectedly heard in my head, may you be filled with loving kindness. And I sort of had this instant realization, this, this moment of heartfulness, of my heart opening to this person. And this real, this real, I felt really sort of connected with them. And I was like, oh my God, you are not filled with loving kindness. Like you are, you're not peaceful and at ease. Like you're, you're not living with an open heart. You're living with hate and judgment and ire and combativeness. And I just found myself saying, I didn't say to them, may you be filled with loving kindness, because I'm not sure that would have been received well. Uh, do y'all know the sort of the southernism, you know, bless your heart? It's really, uh, so the, the Buddhist version of that is sort of, thank you for giving me a reason to practice. Uh, but I just found myself saying, I wish you well. I'm just going to turn around and walk the other way. And I did. And I've never seen that person again. My dog regularly pees in that yard. Uh, I, I've... Uh, <laughs> I've met the people that live there. They have a dog. They don't seem to care. Um, so I, I really don't know who this person was or what their, their baggage was. And it wasn't like I was like peeing in the roses or something. It's just grass, man. Um, the larger takeaway for me, as one of my uh, mentors used to say, is that practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes more permanent. Practice makes something more second nature. You know, instead of your first nature is like combativeness and selfishness, and this, it makes this loving friendliness more second nature, more at hand. Because that argument could have escalated further, but that, that moment of heartfulness that I'd been practicing, it, it short-circuited that, that trajectory, that, that vicious spiral of, of going down in, into a more virtuous cycle, of, of breaking into more freedom and liberation. So again, we'll practice this some more at the end of the, the sermon, but uh, the final thing I'll mention here is it can be really skillful, too, to work with the pith of these sayings, just, just dropping into your consciousness love, peace, ease, open heart. It doesn't have to be this, this long phrase. The, the second of the four practices that can transport us into these divine dwellings, are you, maybe you're already starting to get a sense of this, of how this can really shift how we are in the world. Uh, the second of these four Brahma-viharas is karuna, or compassion. Compassion literally means, and Ursa spoke some about this as well, it means to suffer with someone, to suffer alongside someone. Uh, and it, uh, it's central to the bodhisattva path of freely choosing to delay full enlightenment until all sentient beings are liberated. Uh, the far enemy of compassion is cruelty, inflicting pain with indifference. Can you kind of feel that within yourself? Compassion, suffering with someone, as opposed to being the one who's cruelly inflicting. And in a lot of our politics, you probably heard the saying, often cruelty is the point. Uh, that we, we see that in some of the terrible, very uncompassionate politics. The near enemy, though, is altruistic narcissism, where you're, on, you're only doing it to be seen doing it, right? So you're, you're doing it to, uh, so that's it's ultimately to be seen being a good person. So just kind of feeling that, just opening in compassion versus being like, is anybody watching? You know, like, that being said, 
in the spirit of putting your own oxygen mask on first, I'm a big fan of the mindful self-compassion practices that Kristen Neff and Christopher German, there's, you can Google my, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. There's lots of uh, free uh, practices on their website. Uh, and I wanna teach you my favorite one that I've learned from them, and it's called taking a tender self-compassion break. And there's, there's three steps. And you can actually try it with me right now. If you're comfortable doing so, put one hand on heart center, just kind of offering yourself some compassionate touch. Put another hand on your gut. Or if there's somewhere else in you that's feeling particularly tense, you can put a hand there. And just think about in the last, you know, today or in the last few days, what's something you've been having difficulty with? Something you've been struggling around or something that's really just breaking your heart about the world? And just try noting silently to yourself and just noting, being honest, this is a moment of suffering. And just breathing into that. Just acknowledge and being present. This is unsatisfactory. This is, this is suffering. And then reminding yourself, it's not really personal to you. Suffering, it's a part of life. It's part of the human condition. All of us face challenges in our lives, feeling that solidarity with all sentient beings. And third, setting an intention, amidst this moment of suffering, may I be kind to myself. Instead of just shooting more arrows of you know, beating myself up, may I be kind to myself. You can impl- and this can be really hard for some people, but see if you can try it. Just say to yourself, I love you. You know, some people call this, like on social media, accepting your own friend request. I love you. You can also try imagining that a dear friend is having the same problem as you. What would you say to that person to comfort them? And can you give yourself permission to offer that advice and to accept it for yourself? As Audre Lorde taught us, in the face of systems of oppression, Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It's self-preservation. It's actually an act of political warfare against the systems of oppression. As you're ready, you can release your hands. The third of the four practices that can transport us toward these immeasurable lands of the Brahma Viharas is mudita, or vicarious joy the pleasure that comes from delighting in other people's well-being. Some of you may have experienced this through your children or grandchildren, but just being so delighted that they are delighted. The far enemy of vicarious joy, you can maybe guess, it's jealousy or envy, right? Uh, An even more direct opposite is the German word schadenfreude, some of you will know that. If you don't know, if you don't, not sure what I'm talking about, uh, if you know the musical Avenue Q, uh, look up. They've got a wonderful song, uh, Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude literally means harm joy. It means pleasure at other people's pain. And just think about the difference between that, right? Pleasure at other people's pain versus, which is, it's ultimately toxic for your heart, you know? Uh, and and do you know the phrase, you know, be careful of drinking poison and hoping the other person dies? Um, The near enemy is grasping at a pleasant experience out of insufficiency or lack. Instead of just being joyful, it's like, ah, there's this desperation, there's this grasping, there's this clinging. One of the most fruitful places I've found to practice mudita, um, empathetic joy, is actually on social media. 
Scrolling through pictures of other people's exotic vacations and fancy meals and celebratory life events can sometimes bring up jealousy, especially if you're having a particularly hard time at that moment, right? Uh, But this is actually an opportunity to practice delighting that other people are happy and well. Importantly, it's not about falsely manufacturing that joy. Oh, I'm so happy that they're at the beach, right? No, it's really, it's really not about that. It's about allowing, it's about opening your heart and allow, they've got enough joy, right? Let their joy enter into you. Uh, to me, it's sometimes easier to use a negative example or a more difficult example. Have you ever like unexpectedly um, stumbled upon people in deep grief that you knew nothing about, but you could feel their grief entering into you? It's like that but it's with happiness, it's with joy. Just opening your heart and allowing it to to flow into you. Or even working um, with the phrase, just dropping into your consciousness, may joy arise. And it's not that that automatically makes you joyful, but it's just starting to incline your heart toward joy. May joy arise. Just setting that intention, joy. May joy arise. The fourth and final practice that can transport us toward the more infinite space of the Brahma Viharas, as opposed to the more constricted space of, uh, of suffering and unsatisfactoriness, is Upeksha in Sanskrit or Upeka in Pali, uh, which is often translated as equanimity, kind of being more balanced. The far, far enemy of equanimity is greed and resentment. The near enemy, and this is really important because people often get this confused, the near enemy is apathy or indifference. That is not equanimity, it is not, it is not indifference. To quote one of our greatest living meditation teachers, Joseph Goldstein, he said about practicing equanimity, equanimity is that quality of mind that is about impartiality and imperturbability. It's far enemy, it's opposite, is quite familiar, it's the reactive mind, not responding, reacting. Right, often negatively in, in, in habitual ways. Equanimity is that quality of mind that receives everything without preference one for another and is perhaps best understood in the teachings of the third Zen patriarch's famous lines, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. But we have a lot of preferences typically, right? That's why we're not equanimous. Goldstein continues, the the mind is actually that open. And this is what I spoke a little bit about awareness practice earlier, that the sun is out. That when you're equanimous, the mind is it's that open, that receptive, that impartial. And it's actually a tremendous strength as well as a tremendous ease. Sometimes feel as as if it's a quality of pulling away uh, that apathy or indifference that it actually isn't. Of course, that's the, the near enemy. When the mind is moving back into that near enemy of indifference, you'll notice that it's feeling cold. That's not heartfulness. Equanimity is still warm. It's still connected. It's still open. Uh, Or if it's not caring, and if the mind is getting agitated in some way, that is not equanimity. More succinctly, Brene Brown, inspired by the Buddhist teacher Joan Halifax, offers this mantra for cultivating equanimity amidst the vicissitudes of life. What the Buddhist tradition, I'll give you one more list, the eight worldly winds. We're constantly getting caught up in these different eight worldly winds. This is Brene Brown's saying, strong back, soft front, wild heart. Strong back, soft front, wild heart. Here's how she, here's one of my all-time favorite Brene Brown quotes that explains you what does that mean exactly. 
She says, it means don't grab hurtful con- comments and pull them close to you by, you know, reliving them and ruminating on them. It's so easy to do that, right? So you, many of you have heard me say from the book Buddha's Brain, you know, our, our minds are like Teflon for good things and Velcro for bad things, right? She's like, don't grab hurtful conflicts. Don't play them back by rehearsing your awesome comeback that you spend all this time and energy coming up with. And whatever you do, don't pull hatefulness close to your heart because that's the far enemy of what we're trying to do. She continues, let what's unproductive and hurtful drop at the feet, but this is key, of your unarmored self because that's what most of us get wrong. We armor up. We have a strong back and a strong front and we're just armored up from the good things too. Let what's unproductive and hurtful drop at the feet of your unarmored self. And no matter how much your self-doubt wants to scoop up the criticism and snuggle with the negativity that confirms your worst fears about yourself, or how eager the shame gremlins want, want you to use the hurt to armor you up that, again, blocks you from the good stuff too, she says, take a deep breath and let that bleep go, right? (laughs) Find the strength, she says, to leave what's mean-spirited on the ground. Stop picking it back up, right? It hurt the first time, but stop picking it up and beating yourself up with it. You don't even need to stomp it or kick it away, she says. Cruelty, that's another of our enemies. Cruelty is cheap, easy, and weak. It doesn't deserve your energy. It doesn't get us to the Brahma Viharas, right? Just step over the comments and keep daring, always remembering that armoring our heart is too heavy a price to pay in response to cheap seat feedback. This quote is from Brene's um, book, Dare to Lead, and is a profound example of what it can look like to lead with a soft, with a strong back. We're not being a pushover, we're staying equanimous. Strong back, soft front, and wild heart. So we're nearing the end of our tour of the Brahma Viharas, these four highest emotions in the Buddhist tradition, four paths towards experiencing this life and this world as more of a sublime abode instead of just a veil of tears, uh, as more of a divine dwelling. And each of these paths, there is no end to it. It is immeasurable. It is infinite. You can just go down loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. There's just no end to how far you can take these. Uh, to experiment with touching into these levels of heartfulness just once more right now in real time. If you feel comfortable doing so, again, kind of finding a meditation posture where you can be uh, more grounded, more easeful. Again, placing one hand on heart center and another on your gut, offering yourself a gentle, soothing, compassionate touch, just silently offering to yourself, may we be filled with loving kindness and breathing that in. Allowing that heartful loving kindness to be as wide, as expansive, as connecting, as infinite as your heart will allow in this moment. And may our hearts break open in compassion for ourselves and for all sentient beings, breathing in that heartbreak. But may we also open to joy allowing yourself to sink and savor more fully any joy or any happiness that you have access to in this moment, whatever you're grateful for. And may we live with a strong back, a soft front, and a wild heart that unpredictably 
is open to heartful connection in unexpected places. May it be so. One well, now, you can keep your hands uh, there as long as you need to, but uh, remain seated and let's kind of continue in the spirit of, of heartfulness as we prepare to sing together. We'll, we'll sing seated. <laughs>